You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 14. Today, we're asking the question, what are the practical characteristics of a high reliability healthcare organization? Let's get started. Hey everybody, my name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. If this is your first time listening, then thanks for coming. The podcast is produced every week and the show notes can be found at safetyofwork.com. In each episode, we ask an important question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question? The question for this episode is, what are the practical characteristics of a high-reliability healthcare organisation? We figured we're probably likely to do a number of episodes that look at high-reliability organisation or HRO theory. So we didn't want to just say, you know, what is an HRO? That would be a bit broad. We want to be specific with the question and the research. We also thought there'd be a good chance to look at a theory that I don't think we've touched on yet. And in industry sector, healthcare that we haven't talked about a lot either. So putting them together, high reliability organization theory and the healthcare industry. We'll say a little bit later in the episode about HRO theory, but for now, it's a theory that comes out of the 1990s mainly, and it tries to explain why organizations that operate in high risk complex environments seem to have fewer accidents than the situation might suggest. Uh, There are a number of authors associated with it. Probably some of the ones that you may have encountered most often are Vike and Sutcliffe. Um, We'll mention a few of the other HRO authors again later in the episode. HRO presents sort of different characteristics of organisations. Just now for the introduction, uh, the Vike and Sutcliffe version of them says that these are organisations which are preoccupied with failure. They're always looking to find little things that go wrong and to fix them rather than assuming that everything's going well. They try to be very sensitive to operations, so listening to how the front line is working. They have a commitment to resilience, the ability to adapt and cope when little things go wrong. They're reluctant to simplify. They don't accept straightforward explanations. They don't accept just dumbed-down quick explanations. They want to know what's really going on. And they defer to expertise. That's meant to be in contrast to deferring to formal management and hierarchy. So I think, David, those principles, each individual item varies from authors to authors, but they give a sense of where we're heading here, which is sort of really looking closely at the front line of the organisation as the key to safety. Yeah, and I think, Drew, a number of organisations and industries have been linked to HRO theory over, over the years for maintaining somewhat error-free operations over an extended period of time. These these companies and industry includes like uh, commercial nuclear power companies, passenger aviation companies, the US Federal Aviation Air Traffic Control System, the US Navy aircraft carriers, some high-speed rail organizations around the world. Now, these organizations that operate for not just years, but sometimes decades in, in very high-risk and complex environments without so much as a, a major incident. So over the last 20 years, and, and based on a lot of this, this, this writing, many organizations have attempted to make their operations more reliable with some of these specifically implementing and following a HRO strategy. Some of our listeners may actually be involved in an organization that have, uh, 
have some of these principles and programs around these principles as, as specifically part of their safety and operations strategy. I know for a while after Texas City BP had quite a significant uh, HRO implementation program uh, going on. But along this time, researchers at the same time have been really trying to actually continue to deconstruct these organisations and, and really try to flesh out these explanations for why they might be so highly reliable. Yeah, I kind of suspect that one of the original researchers, Todd Laporte, would be horrified at where HRO has gone. One of the things he was very afraid of was that people would pick this up and use it as a solution when all he wanted to do was describe. And in fact, he argued originally against the name HRO. He thought maybe they should be called something like reliability-seeking organisations to indicate you know, that this wasn't a prescription. This was just a description of how some particular organisations operated. But people have certainly taken HRO as a prescription. And I have to admit, I'm personally a fan of the principles. I think they do create quite a good recipe for organisations that are looking to improve safety yeah, there are worse ways to go than trying to follow the HRO principles. But researching what makes an HRO is a really difficult thing to do because how do you know what is a high reliability organisation? You can't just, you know, study an organisation for 10 years. Ideal research program, if you had infinite time and infinite money, is study 50 organisations for 10 years and the ones that didn't have an accident will go back and check the data to see what made those ones special. So it is quite it is quite hard to research a, a HRO when you've got different explanations and 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 theories saying what a HRO is, and then you've also got this passage of time which an organisation would need to demonstrate being reliable for to to be considered. So you do end up in this situation as a researcher, and 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 I think this has been one of the challenge of challenges for the HRO, the applied nature of the HRO research to to try to find these organisations and then and then justify why they are and and how they're operating. And then, like we've talked about in other episodes, Drew, what you find in those organisations, even if you can convince other people that they are highly reliable, is the things that you are talking about and finding are those the things that are the, the things that are linked to them being reliable. So it is a very difficult space to research. But I did, I did find a paper, um, and I found this paper while I was pre preparing to present at a conference last year for the Australian New Zealand College of Paediatric Intensivists. So I went along and spoke about different types of safety theory and particularly newer safety theory like HRO and safety differently and safety too. And the paper's titled, A Case of the Birth and Death of a High Reliability Healthcare Organization. So it was published in the Journal of Quality and Safety in Healthcare in 2005. And the four authors are Carleen Roberts, Peter Madsen, David Van Stralen and Vermit Desai. So Drew, do you want to give us a bit of a, a 101 of the HRO history? And, uh, and particularly in reference to some of these authors. Sure. So, yeah, I, I think in knowing who Carleen Roberts is and just how important she is to HRO, we need to go back quite a bit of time to when HRO was first, I guess, founded or established. There are three people involved at the start. Todd Laporte was a professor of political science who'd done a lot of military service. Gene uh, Rockland, a physicist, who was moving into more sort of social science and was very interested in rigorous research methods in social science. And Carleen Roberts, who was a professor of organisational behaviour. And what was revolutionary about all three of these people coming together was that they were all interested in studying successful organisations and programs rather than accidents. 
And that wasn't what anyone was doing in safety. Safety was a game of what's a big accident and how do we explain it? I think it's also worth pointing out a bit of political background because you need to understand this to be able to interpret HROs. David, contradict me if you disagree, but I think it's fair to say that most sociology and humanities is a bit left-wing. And along with that comes an innate scepticism of big business and technology. That's particularly true if you ever actually read the full book of Normal Accidents. You can read that as an explanation of accidents, or you can read that as a diatribe against nuclear power. Yeah, and the the politics and the economics surrounding, um, you know, the energy industry as well. So I I agree with you, Drew. I think um, sociologists sometimes uh, aren't quite objective about the organisations that they're that they're looking at when they're trying to actually understand what's going on. Yeah, no, I don't want to pretend that Laporte, Rocklin and Roberts were objective. What, what I'm saying is that they didn't come from that same sort of theoretical background like Turner and Perot, um, or even some of the people later who were doing HRO. Because of their backgrounds outside sociology, they were very optimistic about the ability of organisations to master complex technology and uh, to handle difficult situations. Uh, they were fans of the American military. They were fans of the... You, they weren't talking about the military-industrial complex. They were looking at the American military machinery as key examples of complex organisational machinery capable of undertaking big projects successfully. So while most of the focus in HRO have been on the ideas, what is an HRO, what are the characteristics, I really think that the real innovation is not the theory or the, it's the collection of attributes that come out of it. And it's the methods that are exciting, this focus on close ethnography, on studying normal organisations rather than studying disasters or times of change. What made it particularly exciting was just how much access they had. I worked for the Navy as a civilian for two years and I didn't get to go on a ship. These authors were spending weeks at sea on aircraft carriers multiple times to do their studies. It was fantastic. The criticism uh, that they face is that they weren't being sceptical enough, that they were going native, uh, selling out to the people who gave them access, buying into the success narratives that organisations tell about themselves. Um, so it's a strength and it's a weakness. And you can understand how that can happen, Drew. Like if um, if you aren't quite sure exactly what you're looking for and, and you're not trying to deconstruct an accident, you're trying to understand an organisation in its normal operations and you're within the US industrial military complex and you're, you're listening to all the... Uh, all the proud and patriotic narratives that are going on in that organisation and, and the can-do attitude, then it would be, you know, it would be easy from the outside to criticise the researchers of just going and, and hearing the stories and taking them as a given and, and, and replicating them. But, but these, these authors, like you said, and these researchers were, not, um, were quite rigorous and they've, they've continued to publish um, over the last several decades. You've mentioned Carlene Roberts is one of the world's foremost experts in HROs. She has published consistently on HROs for the last 20 years. She's published with anyone else that you can think of that's, uh, that's, that's written about HROs. She's most likely published with them. And she also led the move away from military and aerospace organisations towards industries such as healthcare, like we're talking about today. Her co-authors, they've also continued to publish extensively on topics of high reliability and organisational learning. 
And one of the authors, uh, Van Stralen, is, is now a professor in the Department of Pediatrics uh, at a university in California. So, Drew, these authors are very credible to be researching and discussing high reliability in the healthcare environment, but the methods that they followed were not that clear. Yeah, so the paper, I guess, can be best described as a retrospective case study. It's all written in past tense, and it tells the story about what happened in an organisation as they tried to be an HRO, and then as the people who championed that movement left and the organisation went back to being a more traditional hierarchy. So, yeah, I, I think maybe the motto of this podcast should be all methods have limitations. And th this paper has strengths and it has limitations. We don't have the original data. We just have the interpretations of the authors. And this is always the trouble when you don't have carefully explained method sections that say what data they collected, how they analysed it and when the data isn't available for anyone else to look at. So the question is, how much do you trust the author's story about what happened? There are a few things that I look for. If you lay out your methods about how you gather the data and how you interpret it, that's the first thing I need for you to start trusting me. And then the second thing is, you've got to be open about your own relationship to the research. How are you connected to it? Particularly with this one, the story talks about two author two doctors who led the changes in the organisation. And there are several doctors who are co-authors of this paper. And it doesn't say whether these authors are or are not the people who tried the change. Uh, and I found that a bit disingenuous. Look, I think it's difficult, Drew. I was, I was having done some ethnographic research and qualitative analysis. I was really, really curious as to why they were in this organisation at the time, what, uh, what triggered the research, whether one of the authors was an employee or a past employee or whether they, they just came across one of their students who had been, who said, hey, this is what's going on in this hospital, you should have a look at it. And, and it's really important, I think, for credibility and trust. Like you said, on one hand, we talk about the authors and the journal that the study's published in, but on the other hand, is being very transparent about uh, you know, why, why that research, uh, why that research method and, um, and then letting readers be able to form their own view about what you're saying and how generalizable it might be. So I was a little bit disappointed that, that we didn't get more information about that. Yeah, so the technical name we use when talking about the position of the researcher compared to the research they're doing is reflexivity. Um, and the key for non-academic readers is just to remember that no researcher can ever claim to be objective or unbiased. That's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for is researchers who think and talk about how they're positioned respective to the research, at that reflexivity that gives us the notion of trusting them. You, you trust someone who says, okay, I was there, maybe I'm biased, but this is my point of view, this is what I saw, rather than someone who just writes all in third person as if they magically got the information through a crystal ball. Yeah, and as an aside, Drew, it wouldn't be a bad practice for organisational incident investigators to do that as well. If they, when organisations claim their independent incident investigator from the safety department, maybe they should write a page at the front of their investigation about their relationship to the activity in the organisation and their their beliefs about safety and and the workers involved before they start writing anything about the incident itself. Yeah, I'd love that to happen. But David, do you want to let, let, let's so let's sort of skip uh, forward and talk about the context of the research and what it found. Yes, yeah, so let's, let's tell the story of the research. So 
The research was performed at a single paediatric intensive care unit. It was within the Back Bay Children's Hospital in, in Boston in the US. And so the authors describe an 11 year period between, as best I can work out, between 1993 and 2004, where they claim it operated as a high reliability organization. And during that time treated more than two and a half million people. It was one of the largest uh, pediatric intensive care units in the USA, had 1,704 admissions in 1996. So that's like five admissions per day. Kids in uh, in really, really serious uh, health situation. So against industry, um, the average mortality rates for these types of facilities were, were an average of 7.8. And Back Bay Children's Hospital had a mortality rate of 5.2%. So so, so much smaller, but within these numbers, obviously, when you just do a rate or a percentage, like Drew said, you, you hide the numerator and the denominator, but they, they perform many higher risk services, which they were the only hospital in the reg, region able to do. So they actually took transfer patients or transport patients from other intensive care units for particular situations that other, other hospitals wouldn't treat. So they, while they had a lower mortality rate, they were arguably treating far more serious cases, far more far more frequently. So there is a bit of plausibility here to their claim, at the very least, that this is a high-performing unit. They're doing the most dangerous stuff, and they're doing it with fewer fatalities than people who are less dangerous stuff over this period. Yeah, so, um, so it appears that this all started off the back of some incidents in 1993, and the organisation specifically focused on becoming a, a HRO. So they went on to describe some specific characteristics of the hospital ICU during that period that it was operating as a HRO. And I just might, Drew, I just might go and list these practical type of characteristics that they described because they steered away from the, the high level elements and they started to be quite specific about what they, what they believed to be characteristics of the organisation. So they focused on supporting the bedside caregiver. In most cases, this was the nurse and, and that nurse had a whole lot, or the nurse or the caregiver had a whole lot of freedom in relation to how care was given to to the patient that they were close that they were there to to look after they fostered goal directed team formation so they didn't form teams by status or role or or structure or anything else they looked at problems and they and they built teams around problems based on the teams having the the capability and the experience necessary to deal with the problem that that they were facing shaming naming and blaming were not accepted after a bad outcome they derived their care and their their plans for patients by problem solving they decided or they all understood that there were many solutions to particular situations. And so rather than protocol or policy or algorithm, they solve problems day in, day out on their own, almost in isolation from the protocols or policies. Uh, they developed specific objectives for each patient. So they didn't have standard care templates for different types of conditions or situations. Every every patient was treated uniquely and, and specific objectives and treatment plans were, were built around that. The caregivers had the freedom to try specific interventions for particular patients. So if the nurse or any other caregiver felt that something was necessary based on the situation, they had the freedom to, to do that and built their care model around. There was no mistakes if a particular treatment was either helpful or not helpful, then all it did was give more information to make it more likely that the next treatment would be helpful. A couple more, Drew, um, and then I'll get your views. The, there was always attending physician support in person within 20 minutes and that any deficiencies in care were discussed early and they were used it as teaching opportunities because people didn't feel shamed or, or blamed based on what was happening. So there's a list of, of eight specific things. And um, Andrew, what do you think about that, that list of practical, uh, practical characteristics of an intensive care unit within a hospital? 
What I think's really interesting about this list is often when people are telling the story about their heroic attempts to improve safety, they give a list of things that they did, and that list of things is obvious. You know, you're left half thinking, well, of course you did these things, and you're also thinking, well, why hadn't you already done these things? Whereas this list of eight, there are some quite specific conscious choices that they've made. And if that, that's most obvious when you look at the alternative. So, you know, lots of people say, oh, we operate a just culture in investigations. Here they've got a specific policy that you cannot name the person who was involved in the incident. You can't call them out and say that was a mistake. And for lots of organisations, that would be a really hard thing to do. You're giving up your opportunity to hold someone specifically to account. Um, that, that's a choice you're making. The deriving care from problem solving rather than protocol or algorithm, that sounds great. But in fact, you're making a conscious choice not to have a system-focused healthcare system there. You're saying, you know, let's move away from having a system. Let's move away from having it predictable. Let's move away from having it reliable in the traditional sense in return for making it case by case in a way that some people would call ad hoc. So, you know, it's not unquestionably good. It's a conscious choice in the belief that making this choice is both brave and worth doing. Yeah, and I think um, that choice, Drew, we'll talk a little bit later because that comment you made about some people might see it as ad hoc um, becomes really very relevant to the uh, the rise and fall, if you like, of, of the this organisation as a HRO, at least in the eyes of the researchers. But the researchers do go into more detail in relation to each of these characteristics. And they conclude that this feature of decisions migrating to the best person to make them, which in this case is usually the bedside caregiver, uh, most often a nurse, very rarely the actually the attending physician, is is one of the most important things in, in, in a HRO or getting this type of performance outcome. And they go on to talk about this authority gradient between surgeons and doctors and other hospital staff, which can lead to tragedy in healthcare. And we've seen that talked about with flight crews in aviation or, or any other organization where hierarchy silences open discussion and decision-making about the operational situation that people face. So Drew, how do these sit with maybe some other theories? Is this idea of decisions migrating to the best person to make them and, 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 and taking effort to reduce hierarchy and authority gradients? We, we see that in a lot of theories these days. We, we see it a lot more often. And I think this is what causes a lot of the vehement arguments in safety, often with people who disagree with each other without understanding each other. I think it's very telling that the overall thing is something that everyone can agree on. They say the decisions migrate to the best person to make them. Who would disagree with that? Every decision should be made by the best person. What's interesting is that they see the best person to make the decision as usually the bedside caregiver. It's that bit that's controversial. This decision that we're going to make, which in effect results in sacrificing the command and control, sacrificing the predictability, as we'll see later on, sacrificing the ability to put in place systematic improvements through evidence-based care in return for giving authority to the bedside caregiver. And you're promising not to get mad at that person if they get it wrong. You can see both how this could be very effective but also how it could be very uh, disconcerting to people involved in managing the organisation. 
Yeah, that's a, exactly right, Drew, and that's exactly what happened. So what happened um, after this 11 years where where this this hospital intensive care unit was was operating as this high reliability organisation, what had happened was two of the attending physicians, which were the advocates and supporters of HRO operations, and obviously they were senior in the hierarchy, so they were able to, to influence the way the operation ran. They left this organisation within 12 months of each other, and they were replaced by several more physicians. So what had happened was these... Um, these physicians were replaced, but then also a number of other physicians and, and resources were added because maybe the, the hospital was, was so successful that they expanded the services that this, uh, this intensive care unit provided. So following these changes, what had happened was the intensive care unit reverted to a, what, they, what the researchers called a medical model, which treated the physicians as the leaders, everyone else as the followers of, of treatment decisions made by the physicians, Teams were formed by status and role and roster. Protocols and algorithms were, were put in place to treat patient, patients following initial diagnosis. All, all decision-making was made by the physician who held all the central authority over what happened. And they determined that they basically were following an evidence-based medicine approach as the basis for treatment, which is in most situations, this has been the outcome that's been the best for a patient. So this is going to be the outcome we've we are going to follow regardless to some extent of the individual um, presenting conditions by the patient. Drew, that, that's starting to sound much more like a, a normal, in inverted commas, a normal organisation. Yeah, I, I think it's pretty interesting that in HRO theory, we're supposed to defer to expertise. And you could argue that both the HRO version and the normal version defer to expertise. There's just this real contrast in who counts as an expert. You know, when it was in uh, what they called HRO mode, the physicians were in charge, but they were exerting their leadership by having the confidence to delegate authority for making decisions to the point where some of those decisions were outside their immediate control. You know, they balanced that a little bit by making sure that they were always within 20 minutes. So they were sacrificing some degree of control, but still you're able to get there and help out if they needed to. Whereas the model was moved to one where the physicians are still in charge, but now they're exerting that authority much more tightly to the point where other people are not allowed to make decisions and they have to refer the decisions back to the physicians. And so that's a really you know, difficult question. Who's the expert? Is it the physician who understands the disease, probably has better knowledge of the evidence, possibly more up-to-date knowledge. They're probably doing more uh, professional reading specifically about the evidence of particular diagnoses, particular treatment modes. Um, on the other hand, there's the nurse who's got a much closer knowledge of the particular patient, has access to the family and all of that local information. And I think part of the problem here is we're sort of framing the question not very well. It's not, it's not a choice of one or the other. We've got both available to us. It's what model lets us make use of the local expertise and the professional expertise. And the suggestion is that you know, as we shifted to the model which gave primacy to the physicians, we lost that teamwork, which meant we kept the physician's knowledge, but we lost the ability to access the nurse's local knowledge. Yeah, that's a good point, Drew. There's, there's, it's like you said, you've got access to both and it really depends on what support you want to wrap around the way that your organization operates because what had happened was it wasn't just the decision making or the responsibility for decision making reverted back to uh, the hierarchy and the and the physicians it, it was that some of the support and discussion and, and and teamwork fell away at the same time 
what they concluded that uh, that the new people in the organisation, the new physicians, had considered this previous model of um, of open decision making by the bedside caregiver to be unsafe. So from there, the nurse, the nurses, and others could no longer suggest treatments. If they did, they were criticised for making suggestions outside of their their role responsibilities. Physicians provided assistance a lot of the time by phone rather than in person. So bedside staff were left feeling unsupported with unstable and deteriorating patients. Andrew, at this conference that I presented at and talked about this paper, the uh, ANZ Intent- Pediatric Intensivist Conference, the regulator was presenting cases of, of mortality or, or mistreatments or misdiagnosis within intensive care units at the same time. And one of the cases that they were presenting was a lady who'd passed away by a deteriorating condition, a spleen rupture in, at about 3 a.m. in the morning. And this was an intensive care unit that in Queensland, actually, that only had physicians for daylight hours and then an on-call physician overnight. So the physician would do a, do its last their last rounds at five o'clock or six o'clock and then go home and be on call. But the custom and practice for the nurses was don't call the physicians unless you absolutely have to. And so what had happened was they'd, they'd waited and waited and waited and finally made the call at 2 or 3 a.m. in the morning. And at that point, the physician said, well, I'm going to be in in a couple of hours, so just do this and I'll be in in a couple of hours. And the patient had passed away. So the regulator was actually feeding back um, a lot of the things that you just mentioned in response to this paper about how the culture and support and the proximity of that expertise and decision making and that is funny. The, the one of the actions out of that was actually that uh, sorry, twenty four seven physician required at that particular hospital if you're going to take those types of patients and you're going to operate in that type of a decision mode. Yeah, I, I can think of nothing more scary than the job of a young nurse or even someone who is a physician but more junior, sort of wondering whether to make that call as you don't know whether things are under control or not. They seem to be getting worse. And you know you'll get yelled at if you make the call too early and someone's life's at jeopardy if you make the call too late. That's just a terrible situation for people to be stuck in. I think the other thing about that case, and this is something that crops up too often as well, is when the family is trying to tell people that something's wrong, they're not being listened to because they're just having such brief encounters with each healthcare practitioner that they can't see that this is someone who's got genuine information to give you, not just uh, your family member panicking. This is genuinely something important they're trying to alert you to. Yeah, absolutely. So the authors conclude that this, uh, that, the result of these organizational changes, I suppose, reverted this organization from being a high, revert, when I say reverted or trans, transitioned this organization from being a high reliability organization to that, in their own words, a low reliability organization. They did this by claiming that um, there was a significant performance deterioration in, in statistics like infant mortality, readmitted, readmittance to the ICU within 48 hours, the number of days that patients spent in intensive care. And so they asked this question about how this situation could persist when all of these performance indicators were deteriorating so significantly. And they concluded that because the organization looked normal to its members, because the new people who came in had said, this is the way that an organization runs. And progressively, the people who had been involved in the organization for a period of time, they left and went to other places because they were not satisfied with the way that the organization had transitioned. So it was almost like we talk about organizational memory and institutional memory, Drew, but once you get once you get a bit of a change of people and a bit of a change in mode of operations, that 
you know, organizations can change actually very, very fast. In this case, it was like within, within 24 months, the organization in the author's opinion was almost unrecognizable. Yeah, that's part of the story that I find difficult to know how to interpret. And I think this comes into you. What can we and can't we practically take away from a story like this, which has a little bit of the hero narrative to it? You know, While we were in charge, things were going well, and then other people took over and changed it, and it got worse. And our takeaways are you should do it our way. I think there are sort of practical lessons to be learned from both the success and the transition back. And we need to understand both of them in order to understand you know, what we can do in our own organizations. Yeah, you're right, Drew. So for, for the transparency for our listeners, so we don't have the exact data. We don't, we don't know exactly how much that performance deteriorated. We don't know exactly over what period of time, and we don't know exactly the relationship of the, the authors to the, to the organization that was being researched. But, but notwithstanding that, let's, um, let's talk about some practical takeaways. The authors actually in 2005 predicted that the world would need to become full of HROs as our technology and society became more complex. So we'd expand our risky technologies. They were talking about things like commercial space flight and what we now know as the Internet of Things, autonomous vehicles, drones, etc. So we're, we're increasingly living with these, uh, these complex and, and high-risk technologies and business models and organisation organizational arrangements. So they they provide three of what they call their their clear takeaways. So so their three is is basically this, and this is 15 years ago. Their three is you need to provide frontline workers with the flexibility to meet changing situations without needing to follow a procedure or ask a supervisor, rely on their experience. The second is you need to encourage teamwork and you need to form teams to address specific challenges. And the third is you you have to avoid naming, shaming and blaming. Um, organization. So, so Drew, what do you think of this list? Autonomy, teamwork, and psychological safety. It's a fairly contemporary list for 2005. Yeah, it, it's definitely very forward-looking. And I, I think th- there's very little to challenge in that list. Although I think people will still sometimes be uncomfortable with that providing frontline workers with the autonomy. And I would suggest that that one does need to be situation dependent it does depend on where the skills and expertise is but one thing that i don't think people did predict in 2005 is that one of the ways the world has changed is not the complex systems and risky technologies but just how much skill and expectation we are placing on our frontline workforce how much resource they have in terms of educational background compared to where they were 20 or 30 years ago how much of our institutional experience is in that direct knowledge that is in those brains and how much technology gives us the capacity to support them at that front line. We don't need hierarchies to make decisions when everyone has direct access to information so, so much more readily. It's so much easier to get a physician within 20 minutes of anywhere when we have robots and video cameras. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So those changes, I think, are really important for our, our listeners to consider about in their own organizations now. And the authors do talk about that and they acknowledge that the these processes that they've described for a high reliability organization, they're, they're very costly in terms of time, effort and energy. So they talked in, in detail in these lists about having having redundancy in the organization, having multiple people sort of crossing over roles, having having two caregivers for really critical patients. And and when the, the change and the, the hierarchy and the efficiency came into it, the, many of these things that were 
time intensive and effort intensive were re-engineered or, re- or redesigned. And so they also said that, you know, these processes can very easily fail and revert. If there's not a push in the organization to constantly drive for these, then normal operations of organizations will revert them back to just a normal type of, when I say normal, will revert them back to a, a typical organization that we might all be experienced in working within. I think that's something that we can take for any organization, not just healthcare, is the this focus that they had on creating and maintaining capacity for teamwork. You know, their safety team wasn't focused on procedures. It wasn't focused on structures. It was, it was focused on developing and keeping those skills. And finally, Drew, they researchers also acknowledge that different parts of an organization might need different approaches. So the traditional medical model, they conclude, does not suit emergency medical situations where you've got every case being unique, you've got very time-critical decision-making, you've got lots of lots of uh, confounding factors at play in that situation, and so you need to treat every situation on its merits. But the authors do conclude that that's not necessarily the case in all aspects of healthcare. So in many parts of healthcare, without the time pressure and, and with more standard diagnosis, then they also acknowledge that evidence-based medicine and diagnosis by protocol and, and treatment is probably an effective and efficient way to to run that particular aspect of healthcare. So, you know, our listeners might need to think about, um, you know, is your organization a, a one-size-fits-all approach or, or do you need to think differently about the way that you manage your operation dependent on the different types of operations that you that you run? So, David, this is, I think, the first time we've been running seriously overtime on one of our episodes, which I think shows how much you and I have got to say about HROs. So maybe first invitation to our listeners take away from this episode is we're interested to hear from you. How much active interest is there in HRO theory? A lot of the online debate at the moment is safety one, safety two, new view. I think HRO still has a lot to offer. And if people are interested, I'd certainly appreciate the opportunity to talk a little bit more about it. The other thing is, what are you doing in your own organisations to promote and enable local autonomy and flexible decision making? Or, or, you know, even if you're not doing that, if you disagree with that as an approach, interested in why that is and what your thoughts are and where you think the balance is between autonomy and centralisation, where do you feel the sweet spot is? So, Drew, today we asked the question, what are the practical characteristics of a high reliability healthcare organisation? Since we are over time, if you want to go back to that practical list of characteristics earlier in the podcast, there was eight points that were quite clear about what was going on in this organization when the authors claimed it to be a high reliability organization. But that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organization. Send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes directly to us at feedback at safetyofwork.com. 